The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, birthdays are wonderful opportunities uh, to pause, to consider, to celebrate with friends, and to celebrate life. Matt sent me something several years ago about birthdays that we don't celebrate in birthdays what the person has done, but we celebrate that the person is. And so as you celebrate others' birthdays and your birthdays and your lives, uh, I pray that you would celebrate who the person is, that they were born, and the significance and the impact that they have on your life and uh, you on theirs. And so it's an honor to be here with you. I was joking with somebody a little bit ago. It's not that 50's that big a deal, I guess, I'll find out tomorrow, maybe. And, uh, but it's just one of those things that when you're a young man, you don't think about becoming 50. It's not that I didn't expect to live to 50. You just don't really think about it. Now I feel like I probably need to be more mature and maybe talk with a deeper tone and go down. And, but, uh, but it's an honor to be with you and to be back with you uh, this morning. Thank you for the privilege of getting away. Last week I was speaking at a missions conference uh, at a very dear, a beloved friend's uh, church, to be able to be with his uh, people, to see what God has done through his life uh, over the 16 years of ministry there. I was able to try uh, some Texas barbecue and found out that it's pretty doggone good. Um, I'm a Carolina boy, but that was good. I went to uh, one restaurant and they had a two and a half pound beef rib that you could buy called the John Wayne. And underneath it, it said, for one hero or three normal people. And so... (laughs) I figured I'd pass on that, but it sure looked good. Um, But I missed being with us here. And even though the worship was wonderful, I missed our time together. Because I love what God's doing here. Uh, I love that he has gathered us here. uh, And that we can see him working in the lives of so many people. And today we're going to pick back up where Doug left off on doing such a wonderful job of of preaching last week, of looking uh, at the life of David. Part of the beauty of studying the life of David, my hope at least in this, is that, you, that we learn together uh, what does it mean to live a life that is undaunted, uh, a life that pursues Christ but yet has an incredible amounts of, uh, of interference, as it were. Uh, difficulties come along, circumstances uh, weigh heavily upon us. Uh, but we still live in a way that pursues his heart because, you see, David was a man after God's own heart. But David was also a man who fell into profound sin. He made incredibly bad decisions. But yet in the midst of those decisions, David always came back. Uh, His theology was always proper in the middle of it. His actions weren't always proper, but his theology was because he came back uh, to a loving and and merciful God who he recognized was holy and he was able to deal honestly with and to be restored uh, and to be able to look ahead that one day a Messiah would come through him. The very one whom he was going to serve and be saved by was going to come out of his lineage and line. What an awesome reality that is. And so I want us to learn from David in that way. But I also hope that as our studies of David's life, they will give you now a context within which to read the Psalms differently. That when you, when you read the Psalms 
and we head there again this summer as we do each summer, that we come to them and when it says David, a psalm of David while in the wilderness, a psalm of David while in the cave, that all of a sudden those words, I mean, Doug was preaching last week about when, when the circumstance of life, things get taken away from you, you're just coming off of this massive spiritual high uh, of killing Goliath and all of these things, and then your best friend is gone, and your wife is gone, and you're trying to be killed by the king, and you're having, you lose your dignity uh, by having to play insane in front of the king uh, of Gath, and you are all of this, and you're stuck uh, now, and you're in a cave, and, and there's like 600 complaining people with you. Can you imagine that for a moment? It's hard enough to be in a house with one complaining person. That person may be you uh, complaining, and so it's really difficult on the other folks. But David is in the midst of all of these people, and all of these people are in trouble. Their lives are in jeopardy because of David. And they're letting him know it. And David writes in the Psalms, God, this is a mess. My life is overwhelming. Nothing seems to make sense. Then he returns but I trust in you fully. I trust your voice over the din of all the other voices that are going on. So my hope in this is that Scripture becomes real to you. This is a real book. This is a real document. This is life-giving, and it is actually alive in and of itself, that as we read it, it becomes our story. And so today we're going to be picking up in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, and I hope you're enjoying Go Through History. I'm a history guy. I love history. Uh, the History Channel is one of my favorite channels to watch and all the documentaries on PBS and all those kind of things. And for you, you may be going, can we get back to that right-hand side of the Bible? Well, we're going to stay here because in this rich history is our life and our story. And this week, we're coming to David, who is back in a cave. He's hiding uh, from Saul. And it seems that God has offered him an opportunity to take matters into his own hands and to expedite the process of getting to the throne. And so we're going to watch and see and learn from David this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word today. Father, we come to your word and we ask that you would bless it. We come and we ask that you would make it alive to us through your spirit, that we would learn and that we would know and that we would be encouraged and challenged and set on the right path. We give you praise today, for we know that you will speak, and we pray that we will listen. To Christ be the glory. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, uh, afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. 
And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand, into the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, I, I cut the corner of your robe is in my hand, for, my, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words Saul, to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me. And in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he, not, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what, he has done, for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. Trying to live life with a clear conscience is a difficult thing. Trying to make the right decisions at the right time, given all of the variables within circumstances, uh, is challenging uh, for us. I can remember as a young boy uh, getting my first BB gun, and my father telling me, don't shoot any birds with this gun, son. And I said, yes, sir. And so I went outside, and I started shooting trees and other things. And then I looked, and there was a robin way down the way. And I thought, there's no way I can hit the robin. And then I heard my father's words again, Billy, don't shoot birds with this gun. But I pulled the trigger anyway. And much to my surprise... I struck the robin, and it died right there in the backyard. And I did what any honest, truthful little boy would do. I buried it and hid it and went inside. And at dinner, my father said, you don't look well tonight. And I was like, and I don't, I don't do well hiding my emotions, as most of you know. If I'm happy, you know it. If I'm not, you know it. And I was sitting there, and he goes, what's wrong? I said, nothing. He said, you sure? I said, yes, sir. It seems that your conscience is bothering you. I said, I shot a bird, Dad. And it just, you know, this weeping confession at the table uh, and all. But that story has been in my mind, those thoughts of 
how our consciences, not the little Jiminy Cricket conscience, but a deep and a profound knowledge of good and evil, the deep and profound knowledge of right versus wrong, uh, and when given a situation of knowing what we should do and we make a decision elsewise uh, at how it bothers our conscience. But on the other side, when we make the right decision, how our conscience is clear and it changes us and affects us. And so we find ourselves in this story with David, that he was in the midst of a battle of conscience. He was in the midst of a battle of how, uh, what do I do? given a circumstance? How, how do I interpret everything that's going on? And so we're going to be looking this morning at a few things. And at the end, really uh, coming, and my hope for you is, how is it that we make right decisions? How is it that we, as, we as Christians, can make the right decisions uh, in the midst of the variables of circumstance, and that we can walk out of that with a clean conscience? Now, on the flip side, I'm going to mention at the end, if your conscience isn't clean, if you've made wrong decisions, uh, there is hope for that, that Christ has given us a remedy for that as well. Uh, but the first thing we're going to look at this morning is simply this. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make sense. Sometimes God's plan in our lives doesn't make sense. Would any of you agree with that? Have you felt that? It doesn't make sense. And the best thing uh, about that statement, and the thing that I want you to do with that statement uh, is uh, own it. it, is to acknowledge it, just to be truthful. You know, I said earlier, truth and integrity are important, and it's important to be truthful about the circumstances of life. That sometimes we look and we say, at least as a Christian, uh, we would come and go, Lord, I've given my life to you, and I'm following you in my life, and I know that you've made these promises to me, uh, that you're going to be with me and never leave me or forsake me. Uh, you have given me the hope of heaven. There's the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you say that you're going to bless my life. You're going to make it fruitful uh, in life. But right now, it doesn't seem like it's making any sense. And it's important to be honest, because if David was anything, David was an honest man, wasn't he? He Read the Psalms. He was incredibly honest. He goes, God, this doesn't make sense. I was happy being a, a little shepherd boy. I didn't have aspirations for kingdoms. Uh, I was just the son uh, of a little shepherd in a little town outside of another little town uh, in a little country in the middle of a map uh, that no one had heard about. And I was perfectly okay with that. And you're the one who came and you pursued me through Nathan and you brought me in and then you poured oil over my head and you said, you're going to be king. I didn't ask for that, but I'm so thankful that now I'm the anointed king, and this is great. And so now I'm looking forward to one day uh, being the king of Israel, and that sounds glorious, and that sounds awesome. But God, right now, nothing's really making sense. Everybody seems to hate me. The current king is trying to pin me to a wall, literally. I've got a whole bunch of people around me who are following me, uh, but they're upset because their lives are in danger because of me. Uh, I've got wives who are upset with me. Uh, I've had to feign insanity in front of the very king who I killed his giant. And I, life is just a mess. And I'm running. And now I find myself in Indoor, which is uh, this little place upside the Dead Sea. And it's a place where I have known because it's a place where sheep would go and shepherds would take their sheep. And so I've known this and there's caves and I'm here and the king is all fighting the Philistines. And I thought, man, maybe now I can exhale. And all of a sudden, here comes Saul again with 3,000 elite chosen soldiers. And they're here to kill me. God, it doesn't make sense. I'm tired. 
And I'm frustrated. Go read some of the Psalms. They're awesome in this way. God, you don't make sense to me. So David was an incredibly honest person. And I want you to have the freedom to be honest with God. I want you to have the freedom in your prayer life. I want you to have the freedom in your journaling to go, God, none of this is really making a lot of sense. I've given my life to you, and I never anticipated that when I married this man or I married this woman who also said that they loved you, that they would betray me so deeply in adultery and leave me to raise our children alone. God, I so desperately want to have children, and it seems that I can't have children, and all my friends are having children, and I can't have a kid. It doesn't make sense to me. God, I was looking forward to growing old with my spouse, and now my spouse is gone, and I'm alone God, I want to be married, and I'm not. God, I want to get into this college, and I can't get into this college. God, I want to be able to make the team. All of this stuff, it just doesn't make sense. And we look around, and we come to church, and we go, how are you today? Good, and you? I'm fine. How's your family? Family's great. You? Good. Awesome. And you go home, and you go back to a place of wondering, if that's what life in Christ is about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. So I want to invite you into a place of freedom and of honesty. That life doesn't always make sense. That the circumstances don't always make sense. But you need to know this about circumstances. Circumstances give us an impoverished translation of reality. Circumstances give us an impoverished translation of reality. We look at circumstances and go, this must be reality. David looked and went, God must have forgotten that I'm going to be king. Or maybe God made a mistake and changed his mind again. Well, he changed it on Saul, so maybe he changed it on me. I, I don't know. But this doesn't make any sense to me. But David looked beyond the, the circumstance. And he found himself uh, in a place where he really needed uh, to trust the Lord on making a good decision Because in the midst of this confusing circumstance, in the midst of this plan that doesn't make sense, opportunity seemed to be handed to him. To set the scene for you real quickly, David and a bunch of his men are hiding uh, back in a cave, and they're well in the back of the cave. I've never been to the Middle East, and I've never been to the Holy Land, so I haven't seen them on my own, but they're way back in there. And Saul and his men are coming around, 3,000 of them. And Saul says, hey, I need to go to the bathroom. That's what it says in the Hebrew. He needed to uncover his feet is what it says. And so he went into the cave. And you can imagine the scene. It's depicted. Saul is basically squatting down in full vulnerability. And David is right there. And David's men come to him and say, that's Saul. Didn't God say that you could take care of your enemies? He's right there. Run him through. Kill him right now. It seemed that opportunity was given to him right there. Life isn't making sense. Seems that opportunity is given to correct things. What do we do? That's where we find David. So, how do we make the right decision in the midst of confusing circumstances? What are the keys then to making these correct decisions along the way. The first key that we're going to look at today is first to know and to have a knowledge of God's character and of his word. The first key to making correct decisions is a knowledge of God's character and of his word. David knew God. 
David knew who God was. He knew the heart of God. He knew that God uh, was merciful, yes, but he was also just and righteous. Uh, And so he knew God to be faithful and, and that God had promised him to be king and God was going to make him king. And he knew that about God. And so he understood the very character and nature of who God is. I think in part, Uh, The problem for so many of us when we come to decisions uh, to make in life, when things are confusing, when it seems that a golden egg has been given to us over here, an opportunity, things don't make sense over here, what do we do? For most of us, the difficulty comes we don't really know God. We don't really know Him in such a deep and a profound, intimate way that we can trust Him in the midst of that situation, that we can balance the fact uh, that the end does not justify the means for God in his economy of thought. Uh, and so David knew God. He had the context of that. And then David knew God's word. He didn't just know him, but he knew his word. And here's what David knew about God's word. God's word explicitly said to David, you're going to get the kingdom. God had promised to deliver David's enemies uh, to him. And that God said somewhere, don't raise your hand against my anointed. We don't know where that's written, but David knew that the Lord had said this. So he knew God, and he knew God's word. And so when the men were coming to David and saying, Hey, David, kill this guy. Saul's right there. Take advantage of it. Look, it seems that the door has been closed, but he opened the proverbial window. And David goes, No. I know God, and I know this isn't right. And I know his word. And when it says that he persuaded them, uh, the word is actually in the Hebrew, he ripped them apart. David basically forcibly said to the men, we're not doing this. He had to basically subdue a a mutiny that was saying, listen, this isn't just going to solve your problems, buddy. It's going to solve ours. And we want you to do this. I don't care who God is. I don't care what God said. Do this. And David's like, no. Talk about a fortitude that it takes. But David knew God, and he knew his word, and he was willing to stand upon it. That's the first thing, and one of the keys to know. The second thing that David knew about God and about what to do in this situation is this, that God's will must come to pass in God's way. God's will must come to pass in God's way, not our own. You see, David was promised the kingdom, right? So what the men were offering to David wasn't a lie. They were saying to him, David, you're going to get the kingdom. And that's a true statement. They were just saying, but the way to get the kingdom is against the plan of God. It's against what God has clearly said. They got to say, don't kill his anointed. Just kill his anointed and you get the kingdom. You're just circumventing it a little bit. Now that should make you think about a son of David a number of years later. Who stood in a wilderness. And he had a voice saying to him, Come on this mountaintop and look out over all of the earth, and all the kingdoms of the earth will be given to you if you just bow down to me. Satan wasn't telling a lie, because wasn't Christ promised all the kingdoms of the earth? He was promised all of creation. What Satan was saying was, hey, you're going to get God's promise, you're just going to get it in a different way. But what David knew, and the true David, Christ knew, was that God's plans have to be done in God's way. 
And that's an important part for us to understand, that we have to trust in God in such a way to say, okay, God, your plans don't make sense to me. This seems to be the way, but I'm going to trust you that this is how it's supposed to take place. I'm going to allow it to happen by your way. And part of that, then the third key is not only, the second one is knowing that God's plan has to be put in place by God's way. See, it's like this, guys. We don't get to gain glory by sinful means. There's no shortcut. There's none of that. It's God's plan in God's way. And God's way is a way of righteousness. God's way is a way of a narrow path. Uh, God's way is a different way from what the culture uh, is offering us. And part of the biggest problem within the church is we have allowed cultural norms to enter into the church and we've allowed to say, hey, this is how you get to be holy. This is how you get to glory. This is how you get God's blessing. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is by far the fastest growing part of the church worldwide, does this. It says, oh, you want God's blessing? It's a promise. We do get God's blessing. Here's how you get it. Give more money to the church. Give everything you have to the church, and then you'll get God's blessing. It's taking a different route to get a promise that God has already made. And we, we change and nuance these things. So, knowledge of God's character and his word. God's will must come to pass in God's way. A third key to making the right decision uh, in these confusing times and confusing situations is that we have to have an absolute confidence in God's justice. An absolute confidence in God himself and in his justice. Look at what David said. After he had cut off the uh, robe there, which bothered his conscience, by the way. And in large part, it bothered his conscience because it was a, sim- excuse me, it was a symbol, most likely, of him saying, I'm revolting against you. And David realized that he had made a very bold statement. And he said, this is wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And he came out afterwards. Saul was leaving. And he stands on the other side of the mountain. He yells over to Saul. And he begins to speak to Saul, which is dangerous in and of itself, isn't it? He just exposed himself to his arch enemy, to 3,000 elite fighters who were looking for him to kill him. But look at the confidence that David has in God's justice. 1 Samuel 24, 12, and 15 May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand, it shall not be against you. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you. See to it, and you see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. And then over in chapter 26, which is a similar story of David going into the camp of Saul and stealing his spear, and he could have killed him again, and he was encouraged to kill him again, and it seemed like everything was going in the right direction. David says this, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David had an absolute faith in God as the ultimate judge. He didn't have to take things into his own hands. He could entrust the situation to the Lord. Now, not every situation that we face or that you're facing is one of this kind of judgment or vengeance or getting the pound of flesh that you think you deserve from somebody. But in this particular application, David was able to say, God, I trust you. I don't have to play the role of God in this. I have to play the role of Bill. I have to play the role of David. I have to just play my role. And my role is to entrust all of this to you. 
Vengeance and justice were not for David to take into his own hands. Now, it's interesting. That's how he acted. But do you know if David ever demanded vengeance and justice from God? He absolutely did, and it was in his prayers. He came to the Lord privately in prayer. He acted with righteousness. But in prayer, he said, God, destroy your enemies and destroy mine. God, make these things right. God, do these right things. God, remember your promises. God, act. God, be the judge. He privately did that. So again, it's that place of honesty and that honest assessment before the Lord. What a beautiful picture that David presented of what Paul would later write in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. That's an easy one, isn't it? Anybody ever offended you? Anybody ever been offended? And your natural tendency is to go, God, I'm going to let you handle this one. Especially when given the opportunity to take vengeance into your own hands. Woohoo, I've got this person now. I'm going to make their life a living, miserable mess in this job. They've crossed me or they've done that or I'm going to this. And we do it in our marriages. We do it in our marriages in a way of withholding love and affection. We do it in our families by withholding love and affection. We become judge and jury. And God's saying this, hey, your role... Your role is to forgive. Your role is to obey. Your role is to love. Let me be God in the midst of this, and I'll take care of my role. You take care of your role. And so we have to have an absolute confidence in God's justice, confidence in who God is. The next key that we find is faith has to possess patience. Faith has to possess patience. You see, God's plan is going to work itself out not only by God's way, but also in God's time. So David and Abishai, this is over in chapter 26, they went to the army by night, and there lay Saul, he was asleep, and Abishai said to David, God's given you the enemy into your hand, now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to him, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or this day, or his day will come to die. Or he will go down in battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I do it. Basically what David was saying was this. I just have to wait on the Lord to do his his thing in his time. We're good at waiting, aren't we? We're good at waiting. I decided this morning not to eat a particular uh, breakfast sandwich that we have frozen in our um, freezer. Because it took 90 seconds. 90 seconds. And I was like, I just don't have time for this. I need the one that takes 60 seconds. Because the 90 second one I've got to put on defrost, and then I've got to flip it over once at 45 seconds, and then it's got to have this. That's too much. I don't have time. We're not even willing to wait on a 90 second bagel or biscuit in the morning. How much more are we able to wait for God uh, to take out his plan over the course of time in our lives? Because here's the big problem with Christianity, folks. There's a big word I'm going to introduce you today. It's called sanctification. And sanctification is a lifelong process in your life of getting you to heaven and making you more like Christ. It's a long process. It's a long work of God. It's every day, each and every day, trusting that the Lord is going to do His thing and seeing His faithfulness day by day. And we want things now. Some of the most difficult marriages that I deal with is usually when a believer 
who so desperately wants to be married is willing to go against what God clearly says in not marrying a non-believer and is going ahead and get married because they don't trust in the faithfulness of God and that their life won't be satisfactory enough as a single person. And they enter into a marriage that is often a mess. And they wonder, and they come to me, how is this a mess? Or the young couple that's supposed to get married uh, in September, and somehow I get a phone call uh, in April, hey, we need to get married this month. Well, what happened? Well, we don't know how this happened, but she's pregnant, and we need to get married. Well, we don't know how this happened. Okay. So you guys both love the Lord. Yes, we both love the Lord. And you know that in his word, it's explicit that we're to remain pure sexually before we get married. And you just couldn't wait until September or November. That's what we're saying. Okay. Patience. We don't like patience. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, and how we want it is now. And when we want it is now. So this faith that we have has to possess patience. David doesn't know the exact manner in which God's plan will unfold, but he had a patience that the plan would unfold. And I'll quickly move on. The last key here is that faith requires submission and obedience. Faith means that we have to die to ourselves. Making the right decision sometimes means that we have to die to our own desires, wants, wishes. That day, back in 1978, I guess, maybe 76, I really wanted to shoot that bird. I wanted to be a hunter-gatherer. I wanted to be cool in that way. And in order for me to have a clear conscience, to make the right decision, I was going to have to die to something that I wanted. Folks, that's so often the case with us. Obedience is a matter of dying. David had to die to his own desires for peace. He wanted peace. Do you think he wanted to be on the run? Do you think he wanted to be hiding in caves? Of course not. But he had to die to self. He had to submit himself to the obedience of God. And obedience is a difficult thing. We have God's law, and we know God's law, and we're called to obey God's law, to allow him to bless us after that. I read a great story this week. The pastor was talking about a marriage that he had done in his church many years ago. There's a soldier who had been fighting in the uh, European theater of World War II. And the church in New York uh, had decided to start writing letters to the soldiers over there. And this soldier started getting letters from a woman in New York City. He didn't know her. It was before the days of uh, you know, Instagram and all the social media. And they corresponded for a long time. And he was able to get furloughed and come on leave back to New York City. And so he set up an, an opportunity to meet the lady to say thank you for the letters. And she said, well, I'm going to be wearing a red carnation. And I'll be at Central Park in this particular place in Central Park. And so the soldier went and he sat on the bench in Central Park. And he was waiting for the lady who he didn't know but was looking forward to meeting. And he had promised to have lunch with her that day. And a beautiful woman walked by. She stopped and she said, hey, soldier. Want to have lunch? And he said, oh, yeah. But, wow, you're really like the most beautiful person I've ever met in my life, and I would very much like to have lunch with you. But I have a commitment that I've made, and so I can't have lunch. She said, well, if you change your mind, I'll be down in the restaurant just around the corner. And this guy was a Christian, evidently, and he said he muttered to God, God, this obedience thing really stinks. 
this whole integrity thing, I don't like it. And as he kind of looked up, he saw an elderly woman sitting on a bench across the way with a red carnation on. And he went, she wasn't a pretty lady. She actually looked a little bit ragged. And he walked over to her and he said, ma'am, I'm so-and-so, I believe we have a lunch date today. And she looked, she said, I think you have this all wrong. We don't have a lunch date today. That young woman who just spoke to you gave me this red carnation. And she said, if that soldier comes over, let him know that I'll be waiting for him uh, at the restaurant around the corner. I just wanted to see what kind of man he was. That man said, he said, thank you, ma'am. See ya. (laughs) He was gone. They eventually got married and had an incredible marriage and a incredible life together. And this pastor was doing uh, his funeral one day telling this story. It's a story of believing God. Not that you're going to get a wife or get a husband in that regard, but it's a story of saying obedience matters, integrity matters at the end of the day. And it's important for us within the church. One of the greatest blemishes on the church today is our lack of integrity. That we don't trust God in our lives to run our businesses in a way that bring him honor. We don't trust God in our social life of how to live, in our relationships, and how to do school, and how to do those things. But there's a beautiful amount of submission and obedience that comes, that needs to come for us. And then here's the kicker at the end. There's an incredible gift of peace that God gives to us with a clear conscience. And it's this David said, God is going to be with me in my day of distress. And that was enough for him. So folks, I want, to hear, I want you to hear this. That when you pursue God, and you do the right things in the right way for the right reasons, there's a conscience for you that brings about a peace that the world can't give to you. For God says, trust me in the middle of this. On the flip side of that, there's this truth. Any of y'all ever messed up? Pulled the trigger on that BB gun? Felt the shame and the guilt of those things? Maybe walked off with that woman instead of uh, staying and doing what you knew was right? There's a beauty that we have of this. We have a true David. We have a true Savior who says, hey, I know you're not always going to do it perfectly, but I'm here. I'm here so that you can be forgiven. I'm here to give you a new life. I'm here to give you something that you could never gain on your own. And as we close, and I'll invite the team to come on up, I want to pray for us today. I want to pray that for some of you today, that you need your conscience clear. You need to be able to know that Christ has forgiven you of all the bad decisions that you've made. You can lay those things down. For others of you, you need to come today and you need to be introduced to Christ for the first time. You need to humble yourselves and you need to say to him, I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to trust you for my salvation. I'm willing to trust you that you really are the only way to the Father that you're the only hope that I have, and I'm willing uh, to set aside everything else, and I'm willing to trust you, God, on your promises and your faithfulness. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And my hope is uh, for you today that if you need to come to Christ, today is the day that you come to Christ. Because I know this much uh, about tomorrow. I'm expecting to be 50 tomorrow. There's no guarantee I will. The Lord could come tonight. Or my days could be up today. And so the important thing for you is to make sure you're right with the Lord today and not wait for your 50th or your 60th or later in life. 
that you're not going to miss out on anything, young people, uh, by walking with Christ now, uh, but you can have all that you ever dared dream, ask, or imagined in him beginning today. So let me pray for us and, and seek the Lord on this.